So um, as I mentioned before, uh, we're starting this new sermon series called Tending Shoots, Dress and Vines. And so uh, the, the reasoning behind that is we want to answer this question, uh, what do we do with what we've been given uh, as individuals and as a church? Uh, so uh, it's, it's easy uh, to get self-focused in our culture in normal times, even more so in times of insulation uh, that the pandemic has, has kind of intensified. And so we're going to be talking more about what that looks like on a whole church scale. The soup kitchen project is, is part of that. The sermon series is part of that. And we have uh, lots more uh, to share next week. And so um, we, we think about this in terms of uh, in 2 Corinthians when Paul is, is sharing and he's talking to two different church communities about sharing with each other in order to help each other in need. And he says... Uh, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And so we're thinking about what does that mean uh, this morning and throughout this holiday season, uh, where there's going to be a lot of people that don't have what they need, there's going to be those of us who feel like we also don't have what we need. And so this morning we start that journey with this sermon that's titled, Enough to Share. And this passage uh, is straight from the lectionary reading uh, this morning. Um, it's, it's just in line with the spirit of where, where we're going in this, in this season as a church as well. So sometimes I feel selfish. I feel feel really selfish and I don't want to share and uh, I don't know if anybody can ever relate to that whether you have enough or not sometimes you just don't want to share I think about this this little girl when I was years ago leading a Sunday school class and her her dad gave her a donut uh, to eat real quick before she came into class she was hiding in the corner as quiet as she could she wasn't quite early eating her donut and and sometimes I feel like that sometimes I just want to have my stuff and I want nobody else to, to be near my stuff, and, and I want to be selfish whether or not it's something that I really need or not. And so uh, there's an important topic that does get talked about in church of charity, right? Of like giving out of your excess to, to other people um, who have less than you. And that's a really important topic. But this passage in 1 Kings is not that topic exactly. It's a little bit more complex and nuanced than that. And I think ultimately it's a far more rewarding thought and chance to exercise a faith um, that's more than just giving out of your excess to people that don't have enough. Not to discount that, just to say there's more going on here. And this is a topic for the past uh, probably at least decade and a half of my life that I've, I've thought a lot about, I've put a lot of things into action about, I've tried a lot of things, I've experimented in a lot of ways to try to be generous and charitable with what I have and to encourage others to do that. And um, 
one of the things that I, that I came across in doing this was just the fact that I learned, just kind of in a meeting with, with somebody in the nonprofit world one day, he said off, offhand in sort of a really uh, celebratory way that Memphis was the most charitable city in the country. And I was struck by that because I had been and still do live in a neighborhood, the west side of Binghampton, and uh, also familiar with other areas in Hickory Hill and Fraser and uh, other parts of, of North Memphis and places like that where there's huge, huge pockets of poverty. In fact, Memphis is one of the most difficult places in the country if you are born in poverty to not die in poverty. Okay. So, then how, how is that to be reconciled? If we're the most charitable city, uh, but yet we have like less than 2% chance of if you're born in poverty not to die in poverty, then there must be something that's more powerful and potent than just charity in order to make sure that everybody has what they need. So that's why I want to start by just saying that, looking at this passage, I want to encourage us to think beyond just uh, charity as we look at this passage this morning. And I want to share a story that happened just the other day uh, to, to try to set uh, our imaginations in this place. So uh, Friday, I was walking in my front yard quickly, and I was walking to go pick up my car from the mechanic, Gateway Tire, and my family was already over at a friend's house. And I was walking down my driveway, and I looked to the right, and I saw my mailbox was full, and I took a step in that direction and landed right in a, in a rut in my driveway, and I went down, I twisted my ankle. And, uh, and it's there I was laying flat, looking up at the sky, the, the car place was closing in 15 minutes, my family van was in there, and my family was over at somebody else's house. And so I'm cursing and stuff like that, looking around, making sure there's no little kids around, because there's lots of little kids in the neighborhood. And I dragged myself into the living room and laid back down on the floor for a minute and until I could, to, could gather myself. I did grab the mail on the way, <laughs> the way into the door, because um, I wasn't about to let that just sit there. Uh, so I, I get up. And I'm, my mind's racing, like, what am I going to do? How am I going to get over there? Oh, my phone died, too. My phone died. I, had, I didn't charge it up. The charger wasn't in a place because Benjamin was charging up a toy or something. And uh, so I come out. Oh, there you go. Uh, I come out of the front door, and my neighbor is driving by in her van, and she's like, hey. And uh, she's this, this middle-aged lady. She's so sweet. And she's adopted all these boys. She's never been married, but yet she's raised all these boys, adopted all these, these young men and, and, and raised them in, into maturity. And I, and I yelled out, I was like, hey, could you give me a ride? And, um, and in that moment, I, I, I felt some shame. I was asking somebody who does a lot for so many uh, disadvantaged children and who... You know, she, I mean, she's, she's stable financially, but she's not, like, wealthy, and she was trying to go pick up dinner for the, for the family and stuff, and I said, hey, could you give me a ride? And she said, sure, and I hopped in the van, and as we were driving, we were talking and stuff, and we get to Gateway Tire, and it's closed. They closed early. And 
so I was like, okay, well, can you, can you take me over to my friend's house? It's not far, it's just over here. So then my, my request gets compounded again, you know, and I'm just, I'm feeling more shame. And I, I resisted the urge to, to say I was sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry that you have to do this. I just said, thank you, thank you for being willing to do this. And she dropped me off uh, at, the, at the house and we had a great conversation and realized there was another mutual acquaintance that we knew, another person who used to attend a house church that I pastored years and years ago who adopted uh, some children as well. Um, and it was really great and she dropped me off and I hobbled, hobbled off into the house. And uh, uh, it, I, I thought I was thinking about this sermon, I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about somebody who has less resources than me, less time and less energy, and I asked her to help me with something. And she didn't even hesitate, she just did it. And you know, I was thinking about the other ways that maybe I could have done something, uh, other ways that I could have tried to exercise the, the uh, resources that I had to get, to get what I needed. But I was also thinking about how, uh, how dependent I am upon my health, like just being able to, to walk, move around, and, to see somebody far off and call for help, uh, how, how dependent I was on to get the car fixed. How many cars driving around Memphis are like, I don't know if you're gonna even make it to the very next place you're going. <laughs> and I'm sitting here getting new tires for my van um, and, and, the, and, the, and the rotors turned, even though that was a thing. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking about all of these things I'm dependent on at any single moment just to make it through a day, an hour even. That as much as I like to think I'm independent or that I'm this autonomous person and I'm just making the decisions the way I want to in life, when I stop and think about it, and the psalmists are so good at this, I realize how dependent I am of on anonymous strangers all over the world for my life to be what it is. Right. The pandemic has shown us this, supply chains, prices going up. I had a guy that came to look at my attic to, to frame any part of the attic, and he just said, I don't want to do it. Like, I got 10 other jobs I can do right now that are easier than this one, and I don't want to do this one. And that's, that's because of the way things are changing and fluctuating so that the people who have to do this hard manual labor, they're, some of them for the first time in their life experience, like, I got a choice and I'm going to pick a job that's more straightforward and easier. So that's where I want us to be thinking about this morning as we look at this passage is how much do we unknowingly depend on other people, other resources that God has gifted us with, that God has created a way of living and being that if we're attuned to it, we can rejoice and worship and see the love of God in an interdependent style of living, way of living. And we can either lean into that or we can deny it. And I think in this passage, 
and in the Gospels especially, but there are all these examples are all throughout Scripture when you're looking for them, shows us the power of the kingdom of God at work when we choose to live in this type of way. So let's take a look at the situation here. Um, this, this story is one of the first scenes we see this famous prophet Elijah. And if you went to Sunday school, oh, you know about Elijah. Because there's all kind of, you ever notice in Sunday school, you learn about all the stories that have animals in them, right? If there's an animal in the story, and you grew up in Sunday school, you know about that story. So Elijah, you know, like he was fed by ravens, you know, at, at, a, at a brook before this passage we're looking at. Um, but Elijah, he bursts on the scene, and he's telling this, this king, what's up, this king Ahab, and so this is past the golden age of the people of Israel. Solomon got greedy, and Israel split into two parts, split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is called Israel still, and King Ahab is the guy here. And King Ahab is something else. I mean, this guy is, he, he doesn't care anything about the traditions of Israel. He doesn't care about the book of Moses. He doesn't care about... Um, the, the God that the people of Israel have come to rely upon. In fact, so much so that uh, in the previous chapter, in, in verse 33, it says this. It's up on the screen. It says, King Ahab did more to vex the Lord. You ever heard anybody that vexed the Lord before? You know right off the bat, that's real bad, right? That, that, that word is not even found that often in the Bible. So if you're vexing the Lord, you're, you're really not doing good. I'm going to say that to Benjamin next time. Uh, you are vexing me, boy. Right. The God of Israel, then all the kinds of Israel who preceded, all the kings of Israel who preceded him. It's title there. So, basically what this text is saying is Ahab is, uh, is the worst king that's been on the scene so far. He's the worst guy around. And then... In the beginning of this chapter, here comes Elijah, strutting up, this disheveled, bearded prophet, right, comes up. Who is this guy? And in verse uh, 1, it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tish, Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Right? So, Ahab, he's running things the way he wants to. He marries this woman who becomes his queen named Jezebel. Uh-oh, y'all heard of? Even if you never read the Bible, you know about, like, a Jezebel, right? So he's from a neighboring tribe that worship different gods, and in fact, they worship this god named Baal. And Baal is really significant to this story because guess what Baal is in charge of? Rain. Fertility. I can't, I can't believe I just did that. Okay. Uh, rain. I'm trying to get y'all to talk to me. That's what I'm trying to do. You can talk to me. I like it when people talk to me. It doesn't throw me off. So rain. Baal, but, but relevant to Josh, to the son. So Baal is the god of fertility and rain. So Ahab, this king, is trying to sure up his supply chain by putting up these poles to Baal, these worship sites 
and these uh, idols to Baal. And he's saying like, okay, what's the one thing that I can't control about me getting all the stuff and having all the things at my fingertips? It's rain. Without rain, the crops can't grow. Without the crops, the animals can't eat, and so on and so forth. So I'm going to sure up my kingdom, and I'm going to make sure I got the rain on lockdown. So I'm bringing Baal in, and I'm going to offer all the right sacrifices to him and set it up all. And my wife can fill me in on the details because she grew up with Baal. She knows what's up. I'm not going to worry about this Israel God who cares about justice uh, for the poor and the minorities and in the land. I'm just going to go with Baal. And so Elijah rolls up and says, hey, guess what? Guess what, homie? The living God says you ain't going to get any rain. None. It's not coming. Until I say so. And you know what? You know what happens after that? God tells him, run. Run away, Elijah. Get, get away because this dude's about to kill you. So Elijah runs away. He goes to a brook. Uh, uh, and, and when he's there, God says, I'm going to send ravens to feed you. So these ravens come and bring him food, and he drinks out of the brook. And then eventually the brook dries up. So that's where our passage starts this morning, is in verse 8. After the brook dries up, and Elijah's looking for what's he going to do next to avoid Ahab and stay alive. Avoid Ahab and stay alive. This is, this is a passage on generosity. And this guy's just trying to stay alive because he just spoke truth to power. Okay? So these are not the ideal situations in which somebody would be wanting to uh, extend and receive generosity. Right? Can anybody relate? You ever been in an ideal situation and just said, oh, it's just easy and everything's working out just perfectly? Yeah. Every once in a while, sure, especially if... Uh, <laughs> If you're still if you're still under your, your, your parents' help there, that helps too. Um, but uh, thank you for being honest. Um, so chapter or verse eight here. Then the word of the Lord came to him: Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So. Elijah is hearing from God, I'm going to provide for you from the least likely person that would be able to provide for you. Least likely person. Yeah. If you're a widow in the ancient Near East, that's already three strikes against you right there. Right? Not only that, but she's also uh, not an Israelite. She's not of the people of God. And in fact, she's not just not of the people of God, she's of the people that worship Baal. The same dude that God's really angry about Ahab worshiping and trying to hedge his bets. It's ironic that God would do this. He would send a prophet who has the ear of the king. He can stroll up and say something to the king to a widow at the bottom of the hierarchy of power and of religious rightness uh, to provide for him. So, verse 10. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar 
so I may have a drink. And she starts to go to get uh, this water. Um, you know, this would be kind of this would be kind of akin to uh, going to somebody standing in line to get like food stamps or something, and saying like, "Hey, can you can you help me out with some food and some drink?" Right? That's kind of the equivalent of what what how we might understand that here, or maybe going into a recently settled refugee's uh, apartment, knocking on the door and saying like, hey, I'm on hard times, can, can you feed me? God sent me here for you to feed me, right? So this is, I mean, if, if you think, you know, if you think like in the Old Testament is just this totally different thing from the New Testament and Jesus' teachings, you've got to reckon with these kinds of passage, passages that completely turn just all of our ideas about what, how the world should work just on its head. So, this widow is out here gathering sticks. So she's gathering sticks to make a fire for whatever food she has during a drought. And Elijah, during a drought, that he's pretty much saying he's the one who can, like, talk to God and make this drought go away, is asking her for water. Right? That's nuts! It's nuts! And she goes to get it. She goes to get a water in the drought. Isn't that incredible? I mean, I'm thinking about me asking for a ride from my neighbor, and I'm like, I wonder the type, what, what was going on inside of Elijah when he was asking, asking this woman? Was he trying to say, like, well, I am a prophet, and God did tell me to do this, and trying to do, like, some self-talk and protect his dignity or you know, how he kind of felt about this or whatever. And, and here's the thing. When we read these, these next verses, here's what we discover about the widow. First, we already know she's super kind and generous to stop what she's doing to go get this guy water in a drought. And then in verse 11 and 12, it says, As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. And she responds in verse 12, As surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. So guess who didn't talk to the widow ahead of time about who she was supposed to provide for them? <laughs> God. So God, God told Elijah, hey, go find this widow, but he didn't say nothing to the widow. Wonder why that is. Oh no. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, God knew already that this widow was full of kindness, compassion, and generosity, and that people who live in need understand and have compassion for others when they see them in need. I I could not recount in one setting up here the amount of times I've received generosity from people who have far less than me materially. Um, and so, so this woman says, hey, look, I'll bring you the, the drought water, the water in a drought, but I'm kind of like on this last meal kick right now with me and my son. Like we're about to eat a little piece of crust and, and die, right? So that's, that's the situation we're in. I'd love to give you some bread. Um, and in any other circumstance, I probably would, but 
this is kind of this is kind of the end for us right here. So verse 13, Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid, go home and do as you've said. But first make me a small loaf of bread from what you have and bring it to me. Can you believe this guy? He said, Make me one first. Oh my gosh. And then make something for yourself and your son after that, as he's sipping his water, his drought water, right? For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. So, uh, so Elijah's saying, like, hey, look, I've got, I've got something here. I have the Spirit of God in me, and I'm actually offering you something for your, your kindness and your provision for me. So we're going to rely on one another. You've got something, and in the giving of that, God's actually going to multiply that and meet both of our needs. Right? Wow. So um, this is really a strange idea. God has prompted Elijah to go outside of his tribe, outside of the socioeconomic group that would be the one to go to when you're in need and said, go and get your needs provided here and I'll actually provide for her needs as well, which is another way of saying, I want you to live in interdependence with this poor, marginalized person who is kind of at the end of their rope, kind of like you are right now, Elijah. And I know I kind of put you there, but hey, you listen. You listen to me. So, um, there's two parties here, both without actual visible, tangible power and resources. And they're acting in faith to provide for each other's needs. And, and here's one of the applications here, is this, this situation with the widow and with Elijah shows that really, that what, what culture wants to tell us, what our culture wants to tell us, is we are in a position to either be able to give and contribute or not. But what this narrative is showing us, in a lot of ironic ways, is we're always in a position. We're always in a position to give and receive. That we always actually have enough to share. And that it's, it's so much so that it's, it's like the, the deck has been, how do you say it? The, the, the deck's been, I'm not a gambler, so I don't remember this one. It's, it's been rigged in, in this direction. So that somebody who is in the mindset of giving and generosity and living to get their needs met and to be able to, uh, to give when others need their needs met, it's like rigged in favor of people acting and operating in that way. That in some sense, that's what Jesus is describing when he's describing the kingdom of heaven. That our contributions always matter. They're always important, no matter how much or how little it looks like that we have to give. So, in verse 15, it says, she went away and did as Elijah had told her. 
And uh, when I think about this passage and I think about this woman, she's never met this guy before, right? She sees, okay, so Elijah's been sleeping by a brook, eating whatever ravens brought him for quite a while, okay? I wonder what he looked like strolling up there. I mean, he didn't, he, he didn't look good, I'll tell you that. Probably sunburned, probably his hair was all scraggly and matted, his clothes were all tattered and stuff. And, and this widow, I would have to imagine that there's two forces at work in her that's allowing her to go and do as Elijah told her with her last little bit of flour and oil. One is faith. Like maybe God or gods or whoever, I'm not even sure, because I, I don't know the God of Israel really, uh, is at work here. Maybe that's really what's happening. Maybe God will multiply these resources. And then the second thing is just like straight up generosity. Like, look at this raggedy old dude. He's probably telling me a lie, but whatever. Like, I've, I already gave him some water. You know, I, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. I don't want him to just sit out here and starve. Like, He's got a good story, at least, you know, let's, let's give it a try. You ever, you ever done that before with a panhandler? I have. I've said, like, man, that's, that's a great story. I'm at least giving you five for that story. That's a good one. Okay? Or, like, or somebody asking me for more, and, 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 and I'm like, look, I got $2, okay? And if you, if, if you don't want the $2, I can take the $2 back. Otherwise, like, you've got to keep hustling, man. Like, that's where you're at. That's what's going on here. And I got $2, right? So, there's a combination here in this woman of faith and this generosity. Like, I, don't, I have no idea if this is going to work out or if this guy is actually saying anything. Because God, God didn't tell me anything. So, verse 15a, or B. So, there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. So, uh, what we find in this story is, yes, we find that in the giving, there is multiplication of what there was to give and to have and to receive. And I think this demonstrates an incredible opportunity for us to think about our church and our lives in this way. It's, it's not just charity. It's actually a way of living called interdependency that I've been saying. And as, as, we, as we get to the end of the sermon here, I, I just want to describe this a little bit more. Um, there's there's kind of three main ways we can try to live. Uh, one, two of them uh, aren't, aren't actually reality. Not fully. And the third one is, is actually what we have to do. So the first way is to live independently, to be independent, to believe that we can provide for ourselves and that we can take care of ourselves, and that we don't need anybody or anything. We just have to work really hard and protect ourselves and do that. And for me, I vacillate into this type of thinking uh, usually whenever I get hurt or I feel a lot of shame. So I'm independent, I don't actually need anybody, I can figure this out on my own, this kind of thing, right? Uh, the second way 
is kind of the opposite of that, and it's a codependency. And so that idea is, instead of being honest about my needs, I'm going to say things in a manipulative, non-direct way, passive-aggressive, in order to try to get somebody else to meet my needs that I know I have without admitting that I need. And for me to respond to other people in the same way, almost in a paranoia of trying to listen to see, because we know that person's not actually going to say what they need, but they're going to expect us to guess what they need. We, we vacillate in and out of this, uh, too. Some of us, this is all we were raised on. But then the third way is the actual way reality works, that we can live in or not, and that's the interdependent way of living. And it seems that God is really interested in teaching Elijah this lesson. Surely God could have just done what he did for the people in Exodus, like go outside at this time, there's going to be a bunch of birds for you to eat, some quail, right? I hear quails, quails quite nice. And then in the mornings, there will be manna for you to eat, like kind of like frosted flakes, right? So you just got to get the milk. And I don't think you can get the milk from quails, but maybe you can figure something else out. I think they, they're milkable. But, uh... <laughs> eggs, quail eggs, that's right. So it could be, could be productive that way. Uh, but he didn't do that. God said, go to this widow. She's going to provide for you. You're going to provide for her. And I want you to know this right now during a drought and see how this works in the way that God has situated this whole planet to run. And so the love and the care of God was not just expressed through what Elijah, the person who had the authority of God in the, in the story, but also through the widow, the one without that authority, that God was present and facilitating his love and his care very intentionally through both parties. So, so what I think that means is in our giving, in the ways that we're charitable, in the ways that we give to the church, in the ways that we give to other things in our city, there is also an opportunity there to receive if we allow ourselves to, if we are thinking in a different way other than I'm going to amass all the resources I can for myself, no matter what I have to do morally, whatever else I have to look the other way from, and then give what I have that I feel like is left over to other people. That, that is how you can be the most charitable city in the country and still have inescapable poverty, is that mindset. But when we see ourselves in a delicate web of interdependent life, that the love of God and provision of God flows through as those giving and receiving, then something greater than that can be produced. Um, Paul's describing this uh, in, in the book of 2 Corinthians uh, as he's talking about and reminding them of that Christ, though he was rich, became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. He's describing that to these churches. And then he says here, 
in verses uh, 12 through 15 of 2 Corinthians 8. He says, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. That's such a helpful rephrase. Yeah, according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little, which what he's quoting there is from Exodus 16 about picking up the manna. You see? So, so throughout the scriptures, there's this message of interdependent living that God is working in and through. And for whatever else happens, whatever else comes our way as a church, whatever else that, that we get excited about or interested in or scared about, I want us to be able to lean into this thread of what does it mean to give and to receive, to, to measure not according to what we don't have, but what we do have to give. So what will we do with what we have? So let's go ahead and, and come to the table, receive from our Lord Jesus through communion, and then we can think about then what is it that we have then to give.